This is a recording of Shaken Faith Syndrome and the Case for Faith by Stephen O. Smoot, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 2, 2012, pages 105 to 126, read by Bryce Haymond. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. This is a review of Michael R. Ash's book, Shaken Faith Syndrome, Strengthening One's Testimony in the Face of Criticism and Doubt. Redding, California, Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research, 2008. Abstract Michael R. Ash is a Mormon apologist who has written two thoughtful books and a number of insightful articles exploring a wide range of controversial issues within Mormonism. His recent book, Shaken Faith Syndrome, Strengthening One's Testimony in the Face of Criticism and Doubt, is an outstanding apologetic resource for individuals searching for faith-promoting answers that directly confront anti-Mormon allegations and criticisms. Ash does an excellent job in both succinctly explaining many of the criticisms leveled against the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and articulating compelling answers to these criticisms. Wherefore didst thou doubt? Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. A favorite scripture of Latter-day Saint scholars is Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 118. And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently, and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning, even by study, and also by faith. While it is usually the last phrase, seek learning even by study and also by faith, of the scripture that resonates with LDS scholars, the first part of this passage is equally profound. As all have not faith, or, one might say, have had their faith challenged or shaken, we are to teach each other words of wisdom from the best books. This scripture is a mandate to bolster each other's faith as much as it is an invitation to pursue truth. Additional scriptures from Doctrine and Covenants invite Latter-day Saints to engage with the gospel intellectually as well as spiritually. Seek not for riches but for wisdom, admonishes D&C section 6 verse 7. Study and learn and become acquainted with all good books and with languages, tongues, and people, we are instructed in D&C 90, verse 15. Obtain a knowledge of history, and of countries, and of kingdoms, of laws, of God and man, dictates D&C 93, verse 53. The Latter-day Saints, accordingly, have long been keen students of history and cultures. As Elder Marlon K. Jensen, the previous church historian and recorder, summarized, Quote, several Latter-day revelations speak to the subject of church history. 
In them, the Lord clearly says he wants a record kept, and the record is to be kept continually. The record is to include all things that transpire in Zion, and is to chronicle the manner of life and the faith and works of the Latter-day Saints. It is to be written for the good of the church, and for the rising generations that shall grow up on the land of Zion. Those who keep the record, provided they are faithful, are promised it shall be given them by the Comforter to write these things. End quote. The need to buttress faith in the restored gospel through study and prayer is necessitated by a sustained history of both sectarian and secular attacks on LDS beliefs and practices. Those bent on destroying the faith of the saints, or at least trying to morph their faith into something totally alien to the foundational tenets of Mormonism, have long been engaged in a crusade against Mormonism from both the pulpit and the press. Others have been subtler in their subterfuge, and have, like wolves in sheep's clothing, attempted to undermine the faith of the saints from within. Their goal has been, and remains, to prove that the ground and content of LDS faith is untenable, outrageous, or even a dangerous deception. The goal of these critics is frequently to convince church members to totally abandon Mormonism, or to radically remold Mormonism into a meaningless pastiche of moral relativism and benign atheism that denies the existence of God, divine nature, and atonement of Christ, and the historicity of the founding claims of Joseph Smith, including the first vision, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and the restoration of priesthood. Even before the Book of Mormon came off the press, critics of Joseph Smith's Gold Bible scoffed at any claims of authenticity, and it was only a short time after the founding of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that enemies began to vilify, mock, and otherwise denounce Joseph Smith's revelations as the vilest of frauds. The entire affair surrounding Joseph Smith's account of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon seemed like nothing more than another sad example of religious fanaticism and imposition duping a credulous populace. The response to these attacks has led to a vigorous tradition of apologetics within the Church of Jesus Christ. Although, as Richard Bushman has rightly observed, proponents of the Book of Mormon face an uphill battle in resisting this onslaught of critical arguments. In the early to mid-19th century, such luminaries as Oliver Cowdery, Parley P., and Orson Pratt, and President John Taylor all took up the pen in defense of the faith. At the turn of the century, Elder B. H. Roberts, Elder John A. Woodsow, and others offered responses to increasingly sophisticated attacks. And from the mid-twentieth century to the present, Hugh Nibley and other scholars have written extensively in response to contemporary assaults on the faith of the saints. With the recent advent of easy access to the Internet, criticisms of the Church of Jesus Christ have been made widely available though most remain retreads of the same tired, well-worn attacks that often date to the 1830s. So ubiquitous are these frequently half-baked and regurgitated criticisms 
that in 2008, Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles counseled the saints to be more involved online to correct misinformation about the church. In response to Elder Ballard's counsel, and to combat this tidal wave of anti-Mormon websites, blogs, and message boards, numerous amateur LDS apologists have begun to defend the faith on the web. Internet apologetics, as one might call it, has opened up a new realm of action that resembles something akin to the American Wild West of popular Hollywood depiction. Without the control of publication standards or peer review, and with the ability to hide in anonymity behind a computer screen, posters on blogs and message boards can get away with saying pretty much anything they please without repercussion, no matter how false, scurrilous, detestable, or putrid the claim may be. On one particularly unpleasant message board dedicated to allowing apostates and critics to rant against the church unfettered, breathtaking examples of often highly vulgar, personal character assaults against LDS church leaders and members can frequently be seen with nauseating consistency. While some Internet websites do foster civil and engaging discussion of Mormonism, many more seem to exist only to function as nothing more than intellectual gutter holes. Shaken Faith Syndrome, an Overview Michael R. Ash has taken to heart the directive given in D.N.C. section 88, verse 118. His passion for clarifying, expounding, and defending the restored gospel has produced two thoughtful books, besides numerous articles both online and in print. Ash typifies Hugh Nibley's amateur, who, despite no formal academic degrees, has nevertheless offered respectable and substantive contributions to the current discussion. With an impressive knowledge of the controversies being debated within Mormonism, and a keen ability to distill complex issues into manageable discussions, Ash is a valuable asset to the Mormon community. One of Ash's more recent offerings is the book Shaken Faith Syndrome, Strengthening One's Testimony in the Face of Criticism and Doubt. Published in 2008 by the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research, Fair. This book, according to the back cover, attempts to explain how Latter-day Saints can be both critical thinkers and devout believers. This book is overtly apologetic in nature. But why is another book such as this necessary? In the foreword to Shaken Faith Syndrome, Ash explains that current anti-Mormon arguments, especially those found on the Internet, have led him to write with the hope that he can, number one, give readers unaware of LDS apologetic material an overview and summary of this valuable information, number two, introduce readers to the controversial material typically brought up by critics from a faithful perspective, thus inoculating them against hostile efforts to use such issues against them, and number three, strengthen the faith of church members. The book is divided into two parts, Misplaced Testimony and Anti-Mormon Vulnerability, and Responses to Specific Anti-Mormon Claims. A list of sources for further study is given at the end of each chapter in Part 2. Endnotes are provided, followed by an index. Overall, the type, layout, and format of the book are aesthetically pleasing, 
although the use of endnotes instead of footnotes is disappointing. Part 1. Doubt, Cognitive Dissonance, and Paradigms Part 1 of Shaken Faith Syndrome is devoted to establishing the methodology that Ash will use to address specific topics in Part 2. Ash's examples of real people who have voiced their concerns, thoughts, and opinions on message boards and in other venues are commendable. Many of these narratives are eye-opening, taken directly from ex-Mormon message boards that paint a vivid picture of what can happen to those who lose confidence in the church. Ash explores important subjects such as the nature of paradigms, cognitive dissonance, and coping with doubt. He notes that shaken faith may result from unrealistic expectations of prophets or science, or both. And he goes on to describe the danger of fundamentalist, dogmatic, or close-minded ideologies about certain facets of the gospel or early LDS historical events that can make believers more likely to apostatize when they encounter challenging issues. An engaging chapter also responds to the common accusations leveled against Mormon scholars associated with the Maxwell Institute. Most appropriately, the first chapter of Shaken Faith Syndrome details how to handle doubt with reference to the theory of cognitive dissonance. Ash explains that cognitive dissonance is a psychological phenomenon that describes the discomfort felt when confronted with conflicting items of equally weighted information. In Chapter 2, Ash insightfully demonstrates that ex-Mormons also suffer from cognitive dissonance when confronted with faith-affirming information. Contrary to the facade fabricated by self-assured and insulated critics, cognitive dissonance is a two-edged sword that cuts both ways. No human can, or should, be free from its effects. It is part of how we learn, grow, and assimilate new information. The two chapters of Shaken Faith Syndrome that many Latter-day Saints may find the most difficult to grasp are Chapter 3, Unrealistic Expectations of Prophets, and Chapter 4, Confusing Tradition with Doctrine. In these two chapters, Ash admonishes his LDS readers not to set prophets on a pedestal of perfection and inerrancy, nor to confuse folk traditions, even popular traditions, with established doctrine. Doing so, according to Ash, can lead to dissonance when one discovers the unsurprising, but to some still shocking, reality that prophets are human beings too, and that at times they have offered speculation or personal opinion on various matters, or have not always been in full agreement with each other. Some members of the church assume, if only implicitly and unconsciously, that every single word spoken by a prophet or an apostle constitutes a divine special revelation or official church doctrine. Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles recently disapproved of this mentality during his address given at the 182nd Annual General Conference of the Church. Quote, at the same time, it should be remembered that not every statement made by a church leader, past or present, necessarily constitutes doctrine. It is commonly understood in the church that a statement made by one leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered, opinion 
not meant to be official or binding for the whole church. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that a prophet is a prophet only when he is acting as such. End quote. Or, if asked further, these members would agree that prophets are certainly not inerrant, and yet would still be extraordinarily troubled if any example of error came to their attention. This tendency, as documented by Ash, has led members to question their testimonies when confronted with information that contradicts their false assumptions. The prophets do not claim infallibility, but some members unwittingly act as if this is the case, and are then disturbed if the prophets do not measure up to that unrealistic standard. Likewise, Ash warns against confusing tradition with established doctrine. An example is how Latter-day Saints have viewed the geography of the Book of Mormon in the past. He notes, quote, It was the traditional view of a hemispheric geography, however, that was passed from generation to generation of Latter-day Saints as an unarguable truth. This truth was spoken from the pulpit, integrated in, into manuals, taught in classes, and casually implied as LDS doctrine for nearly two hundred years among most church members." End quote. But even though a hemispheric model of the geography of the Book of Mormon has been taught in the past, it has never been official doctrine. Those who conclude that it is may experience cognitive dissonance and the accompanying of negative effects on their faith. Chapters 7, 8, and 9 were perhaps my favorite in Part 1 of Shaken Faith Syndrome. Chapter 7, Betrayal and Church Cover-Up, addresses the common complaint that the Church has undertaken to cover up damning or controversial aspects of Mormon history. In tackling this claim, Ash explains that the Church has actually been remarkably transparent in publishing controversial aspects of its history. Quote, As we examine other challenging issues in LDS publications, we find that many, if not all, of the controversial issues have been noted, examined, or discussed by believing LDS historians in a variety of LDS-targeted publications, conferences, and programs. End quote. Official church publications, such as the Enzyme and the Improvement Era, and quasi-official publications, such as BYU Studies and the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, have explored many controversial topics. Ash himself provides a list of examples of issues tackled by these official publications, which should serve as solid evidence that the church is not censoring its history. Although it could be argued that the church could do more to foster a better cultural environment where church members feel more safe asking about controversial issues, it is a far cry from the constant refrain of critics that the church is deliberately suppressing its history. Chapters 8 and 9 focus on the work done by scholars associated with the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, form, formerly FARMS. Ash provides something of an overview of this work in Chapter 8, adding cognition's beliefs, and counters arguments against the quality of work done by the Maxwell Institute in Chapter 9, anti-Mormon disdain for LDS scholarship and apologetics. The most common arguments put forth by critics that are answered by Ash include the following. LDS scholars are not real scholars. LDS apologists engage in ad hominem. 
LDS scholars are too biased to be objective. LDS scholars are really just paid apologists. Farms articles are not peer-reviewed. Non-LDS scholars reject the arguments of Farms and other LDS apologists. LDS scholars have changed and are continuing to change the church and church doctrine. Ash ably answers these accusations, which, unfortunately, are routinely advanced by critics of Mormonism. Part 2. Specific Responses to Anti-Mormon Arguments Part 2 of Shaken Faith Syndrome is dedicated to answering specific criticisms of the Book of Abraham, the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, LDS Church History, and LDS Doctrine. Just a few of the subjects discussed by Ash in Part 2 of Shaken Faith Syndrome include the Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith Papyri, Book of Mormon Geography, Archaeology, Anachronisms, and Historicity, the Kinderhook Plates, Plural Marriage, and the First Vision. As noted earlier, in Part 2, Ash does not offer any new contributions to the arguments already put forth by LDS scholars. Rather, he provides a handy summary and overview of these issues, with some of his own commentary added in. The Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith Papyri Some Latter-day Saints with weakened faith cite the controversy surrounding the Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith Papyri as a significant contributing factor. After all, the arguments against the Book of Abraham often create the impression that it is established beyond any reasonable doubt that the book is a patent fraud. The evidence for Joseph Smith's deception, the critics claim, is so straightforward that nobody would be able to honestly continue to believe in the book of Abraham after seeing the truth of the matter. However, there is much that has been said in favor of the book of Abraham's authenticity, and the controversy is by no means settled. Latter-day Saint scholars have devoted much effort to defending the Book of Abraham. To insist that the matter has been effectively put to rest because, for example, a few scraps of the Joseph Smith papyri surfaced in 1967, is a gross oversimplification. Ash's discussion of the controversy surrounding the Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith papyri primarily utilizes the research of John Gee, he was perhaps the foremost expert on the subject. Ash also references work done by Michael D. Rhodes, Brian M. Hoglid, and Hugh Nibley. Ash's material in Shaken Faith Syndrome on the Book of Abraham is very close to his work done elsewhere on this subject. Considering how complex the issues surrounding the Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith papyri are, Ash does a fine job of bringing together the work of LDS scholars into a manageable chapter that should be comprehensible to most lay readers. Book of Mormon Geography and Archaeology In his discussion of the issues surrounding his, the historicity of the Book of Mormon, Ash follows the geographical model proposed by John L. Sorensen. This model, sometimes known as the limited geography theory, posits that the events described in the Book of Mormon occurred primarily in southern Mexico and northern Guatemala. Although competing theories exist, including those that place Book of Mormon events around the Great Lakes, or in Peru and South America, or elsewhere, it seems to me that Sorensen's model has the strongest backing from textual details in the Book of Mormon and physical evidence from archaeological investigation. 
At the very least, the use of this geographical model, number one, demonstrates that a hemispheric model is not the only viable option, and number two, introduces members new to the subject to an alternative view that they may not yet have encountered. Besides giving an overview of the geography of the Book of Mormon, Ash gives detailed reviews of criticisms of the Book of Mormon, including, but not limited to, alleged anachronisms, textual changes, DNA, and the allegedly questionable nature of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. The Kinderhook Plates The so-called Kinderhook Plates have often been touted by critics of Mormonism as evidence of Joseph Smith's deceptiveness or ineptitude as a translator. The Kinderhook Plates were a set of small, bell-shaped brass plates that were reportedly unearthed in, in Kinderhook, Illinois, in April 1843. The following month, the plates were brought to Joseph Smith, who, according to William Clayton, attempted a translation. Later, in 1879, one of the eyewitnesses to the recovery of the plates, named Wilbur Fugate, confessed that the entire scheme was a joke perpetuated to lampoon the credulity of the Mormons. When in the early 1980s the plates were determined to be a forgery, critics of Joseph Smith quickly used this as evidence of the prophet's duplicity. Gerald and Sandra Tanner pronounced that, quote, It is obvious that Joseph Smith fell for the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Since Joseph Smith did not know the difference between ancient and modern brass plates, as the evidence clearly shows, and was oblivious to the fact that the hieroglyphics were forged, we cannot have any confidence in his work. While the Mormon leaders are supposed to have power, special powers of discernment, Joseph Smith certainly did not demonstrate a capability to discern when he was being tricked. End quote. However, careful research by Ash and others leads to a different conclusion. The historical evidence is not as cut and dried as the Tanners would like us to think. Although it is tempting to jump to conclusions from a surface-deep analysis of the evidence, further investigation sheds more light on this perplexing episode. As Ash explains, quote, It seems instead that after some initial excitement and interest in the plates, the matter was simply forgotten or dropped. It is logical and reasonable to surmise that the reason we don't have a translation of the Kinderhook plates is because no translation ever took place. If it had, the pranksters would have crowd, crowed about duping the prophet immediately and not waited to discuss their scheme years or decades later, end quote. Plural marriage. The practice of plural marriage by early Latter-day Saints has been a point of heated controversy. So outraged were 19th century Americans at this practice that the federal government enacted legislation of highly questionable constitutionality aimed at obliterating the church as an institution solely for its acceptance of this practice. Today many people, both within and outside the church, are understandably troubled by the history of Mormon polygamy. Ash discusses many criticisms, such as Joseph Smith was a sexual predator because he married young women, Joseph Smith and other early Mormons were liars in denying that they practiced plural marriage, and sexual relations within polygamous marriages are indicative of Joseph Smith's lecherous nature.
Besides responding to various criticisms of plural marriage, Ash speculates on the purpose of polygamy. Quote, Plural marriage, I believe, was the earthly restoration and manifestation of the key to this eternal unity, a unity that we can't completely appreciate until we arrive in the celestial kingdom and become fully one with God. And polygamous relationships, also known as celestial marriage, sealed by the bounding powers of the priesthood, we get a glimpse of that heavenly family unit being practiced in mortality. In this limited earthly practice, we primarily see the aggregation of multiple women to one man. But evidence suggests that Joseph foresaw more than this and practiced limited ceilings that crossed marital bounds. In an at-one-ment with God, we can appreciate the need for all potentially divine beings to be sealed together. End quote. The First Vision Throughout his life, Joseph Smith either wrote or dictated a number of different accounts of his 1820 theophany. The earliest recorded account dates to 1832, the latest to 1842. Besides Joseph Smith's first-hand testimony concerning the first vision, a number of second-hand accounts are also extant. Because the alleged discrepancies or contradictions between these accounts Joseph Smith's detractors often make the following allegation, with various manifestations. Quote, the conflicts and contradictions brought to light by the preceding historical evidence demonstrate that the first vision story, as presented by the Mormon Church today, must be regarded as an invention of Joseph Smith's highly imaginative mind. The historical facts and Joseph's own words discredit it. End quote. With the first vision lying at the heart of Mormonism, this is indeed a crucial and sensitive subject. It has long been debated. If doubt can be thrown upon the veracity of Joseph's initial revelation, this would cast a long and dark shadow over the rest of his prophetic career. Accordingly, critics have been relentless in attempting to undermine the validity of the first vision. Notwithstanding, Latter-day Saints have not been silent in their defense of Joseph Smith, nor has Ash, who rebuts criticisms of supposed chronological inconsistencies and problematic content in the differing accounts and includes a chart showing the harmony among those accounts. Ash provides this cautionary note to sectarian critics of Joseph Smith, who, in their zeal to discredit the prophet, employ a double standard. Quote, Many of the criticisms leveled against Joseph Smith's vision apply equally well to Paul's vision. For instance, the critics attack Joseph Smith because the earliest known record of his vision wasn't given until a dozen years after it happened. The first record of Paul's vision, however, which is found in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, wasn't recorded until two dozen years after it happened. And just as the most detailed description of Joseph's vision was one of his later accounts, so likewise Paul's most detailed account of his vision was the last of several recorded. The details in both accounts are expanded because they are geared to different audiences. End quote. As Ash demonstrates in this chapter, contrary to what Walters and other critics allege, the differing accounts of the vision actually harmonize very well, 
and together provide a fuller glimpse of this remarkable event. Preservations and Critiques Although I greatly enjoyed Shaken Faith Syndrome, there are a few aspects of the book that I found lacking. First, Ash uses a lot of internet citations from message boards and other websites with long URLs that are either no longer active or difficult to access, making source checking and further reading inconvenient. Second, some significant issues are either untouched by Ash or inadequately covered. These include the pre-1978 priesthood ban, the church's stance on same-sex marriage, and the charge of institutionalized sexism within the church. Of course, it is unreasonable to expect every single argument that has been raised against the church to be covered in a single work, but in my opinion these three issues are raised often enough by detractors to have justified a response. Finally, some aspects of Ash's book are now outdated, having been superseded by more recent and robust scholarship. Since the publication of Shaken Faith Syndrome in 2008, newer research has outdone some of Ash's own analysis. Conclusion In the 1990s, a popular television show called The X-Files made famous the catchphrase, The Truth is Out There. This is the main theme raised repeatedly by Ash throughout Shaken Faith Syndrome. Sound answers to anti-Mormon criticisms are available. Those who are confronted with criticisms of Mormonism need not be overwhelmed by what they may appear at first glance to be sophisticated attacks. The reality is that most criticisms leveled against Joseph Smith and his revelations rest on dubious allegations, rank fallacies, specious reasoning, or unwarranted assumptions. That is not to say there are no valid criticisms, for some controversies raised by the claims of Mormonism are, from an intellectual point of view, still debatable. In a few instances, fully satisfactory answers remain elusive. Contrary to the caricature perpetuated by antagonists of the Church, Latter-day Saints have not planted their heads in the sand, or thrown their hands in the air and sighed with resignation. There is yet a manifest spirit of apologetic fervor within the ranks of the Church of Jesus Christ, and there is no sign of that spirit abating any time soon. As long as detractors continue to bring forth their strong reasons against the restored Church, learned believers will be there to refute them. Despite its few shortcomings, Shaken Faith Syndrome is an excellent book. I highly recommend it for those who struggle with doubt or uncertainty, stemming from weakened faith or a lack of knowledge regarding the issues that impinge on their faith. I also recommend it as a helpful resource to share with friends or loved ones in and out of the church who merely have questions about the aforementioned criticisms of Mormonism. Ash should be commended for his ability to frame complex issues and to engage in fruitful discussion and analysis of the salient facts pertaining to the controversies he explores. Although Shaken Faith Syndrome does not offer much new to the discussion, it does an admirable job of dispelling misconceptions and modeling a faithful approach to dealing with LDS critical arguments. Its scope and depth of coverage make a compelling case for faith that stands to greatly benefit those experiencing any degree of Shaken Faith Syndrome.
This has been a recording of Shaken Faith Syndrome and the Case for Faith by Stephen O. Smoot, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 2, 2012, pages 105 to 126. Read by Bryce Haymond. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.